I want you to see something this morning that I believe is, is something that is powerful every moment of your life. Luke is writing to affirm and confirm for a man by the name of Theophilus, a man who is a lover of God. He is writing and giving account to him from eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus that his faith is not unfounded. I'm glad to tell you this morning that our faith in Jesus Christ is well-founded. It is not on some pie in the sky. It is, on some re- it is on a reality of a person, a man, a God-man that walked this earth unlike any other. And that's what Luke is telling us. What's so special about Jesus? Jesus is like no other person who has ever lived. No other person has been born of a virgin. Jesus could have been born of humanity, and he could have been a good teacher. He could have been a religious leader, but he would not be the Savior of the world. Jesus could have sinned and still been a good religious teacher. He could have been the founder of the church, but he could not be our sacrifice for our sins. And so Luke is going to point out these things that are unique about Jesus, that Jesus is like no other. I've shared it before, but a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to go to West Africa on a mission trip. And uh, I was talking with the missionary that was there, and he was sharing about one of the young men that was in the class uh, preparing for ministry that that I was teaching. And and he said when he got saved, he went back and he sat down with a friend And the missionary and this young man went and they sat down and he said, I was still trying to learn some of the language. And so he said, I was sharing the gospel and I was concerned. I wanted to make sure that I shared the gospel clearly. And I was very careful about my presentation of the gospel. And he said, I I went through it and he said, I felt like I did a pretty good job. And I was clear and I was was concise and I was was true to the gospel. And he said, I got through and he said, it felt like the, the, the guy just really had not connected at all with any kind of conviction. And he said, I looked over at this young man and I said, is there anything, can you say, is there anything you want to say to your friend? This man knew you before you were saved. Uh, What do you want to say? And he simply looked at him and he said this. He said, Jesus is better. And in that one phrase, he said a whole sermon, a whole message. He said, of all the things that I knew before I was a Christian, all the things that we used to encounter, all the animism, all the naturism, all the voodoo, all those things that we engaged in, Jesus is better. And that's the simple truth. That is what Luke is saying. There is no one else like Jesus. As we look through the Gospel of Luke, and he gives these eyewitnesses accounts, there are multiple testimonies to the perfection and the holiness and the sinlessness of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. We could start in chapter 2 with the testimony of the angel. When the angel spoke to Mary and she said, he said, that which is born in you is the, that holy thing that is born in you. That child that is within the, the womb of Mary is a holy thing. Perfect, sinless. Other supernatural testimony in the Gospel of Luke we find in Luke chapter 4 when the demonic spirit cries out and he says, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. 
Now, I don't claim to carry on conversations with demonic spirits and devils, and I've known some people that do, and I, they, they worry me a little bit, but when demons speak, we would say, well, that's a demonic spirit. But when demons are in the presence of Jesus, they have no other option but to tell the truth. They speak the truth, and they recognize this demonic spirit recognized that Jesus was the Holy One of God. If you go through the human testimonies, Pilate in, chapter, in Luke chapter 23, Luke accounts that Pilate said what? I find no fault in this man. The thief on the cross, speaking to the other thief on the other side, he said, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion standing at the foot of the cross, and he said, surely this was a righteous man. And then, of course, this is affirmed throughout the rest of the New Testament. Paul in Corinthians, Peter in 1 Peter, and the writer of Hebrews all speak of the sinlessness of Christ. But if we were to look in chapter 3 this morning, and I, I want to just sort of walk quickly through chapter 3 because it gets us to our text in chapter 4. But in chapter 3, we have two things that remind us that Jesus is the Son of God. And because of that, his, He is perfect. He is sinless. In chapter 3, we first see His baptism. Look in verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Immediately after the virgin birth of Christ, the first event in his life, the first event in his ministry that is recorded in Luke, points us to the affirmation of the Father. And let me just pause a minute and say something very practical for us. As we look through this and we see what everyone else said about Jesus, we may think it's important what other people think about us. We may think it's important what we say about and think about ourselves, but all that really matters is what God thinks about us, what God says about us. And he says to Jesus, all these others have said something about Jesus. God says, I am well pleased with my son. There's no way that God would have been pleased with his son if his son had committed sin. And so we have the affirmation through the baptism. And then there's something interesting in the genealogy that finishes out chapter 3. It traces back, as I mentioned last week, it traces back through Mary. But notice who it traces all the way back to, identifying Jesus. In, the, in verse 38, all the, which was the son of, this is a reverse genealogy, Verse 38 says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. And this is not Adam being the son of God like Jesus was the son of God, but it's identifying Jesus in the genealogy. He has God in his genealogy. All of this pointing us to the sinlessness and the perfection of Christ. And then we come to probably one of the greatest accounts of the sinlessness of Christ in Luke chapter 4. We see in verse 1, Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Do you see the force of what he says there? We have the Trinity at work in this moment in Jesus' life, as we often see. 
we have the Son doing the will of the Father under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That is true of every moment of Jesus' life. And it should be true of all of our lives. We have the same Holy Spirit residing in us. And it is for us to follow in Christ's path, to do the will of the Father by the power of the Spirit at work in our hearts and in our lives. And so Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. As we look at this, there's an understanding. Some people will say, well, what if Jesus had sinned? Let me tell you this morning that not only did Jesus not sin, Jesus could not sin. He was completely God. He could not sin because of His divine nature, but He could feel and experience the temptation because of His human nature. Jesus was both man and God, and so He experienced all of the temptations. <coughs> Hebrews will say that, we, that He experienced, He was in all points tempted like we are. When Jesus is led into this temptation, and you can take the time later to read all the details of it, but Jesus is tempted with the lust of the flesh. Jesus is tempted with the lust of the, of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And Jesus is tempted with the pride of life. All the ways that the scriptures tell us that we are also tempted. And Jesus experiences this temptation except that he does not sin. He is sinless and he is perfect. In this moment of the most intense temptation that could possibly take place, most of us have been tempted and we've not done very well with it. Now I know I look out here and I see a few folks that you're, perfection, you're, you're right there at perfection. You're almost there. You mean your, your sins just barely even, barely even bump the needle. Y'all just, just, really, but for the rest of us, the rest of us that sin occasionally, can I say occasionally? Let me scratch that. For the rest of us that sin frequently, is that a little closer to accurate? For the rest of us, we understand that temptation comes. Now, the Bible says that there are three enemies of, the, of our in temptation. One is the flesh, one is the world, and one is the devil. The devil doesn't come to most of us. I doubt very seriously the devil has ever bothered with me personally. Now, you say, wait a minute, you think the devil leaves you alone? No, I think there's temptation, but usually it doesn't take the devil to tempt me. It just the flesh does a pretty good job of that. Or the world system around me. I remember times when I was a kid and people would come into prayer meeting and they'd say things like, boy, y'all pray for me. The devil's been on my back all day. And then 10 minutes later, somebody else would come in and say, boy, the, the devil's really been on my case today. And I'm thinking in my little child's heart, uh, there's no way. He was on this guy's back all day. I don't know how he was messing with you. The devil is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at one time. But his forces, we, flat, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. So there are temptations. This temptation is the most intense personal temptation that could possibly be experienced. This is the devil himself seeking to tempt Christ. And he is so devious with it. He is so gifted with it, if you could put it that way. He uses the scripture. He uses good things, as he often will in our lives, and we're often tempted by good things to go and do wrong things, turn them into God things. Jesus resists that temptation. He was tempted in all points like as we are. So why was Jesus tempted? Was it 
possible for him to sin? Was it to try to get him to... Look, the temptation, this, this experience was not to make Christ holy. It was to demonstrate that he was holy. In New York City, the, the Brooklyn Bridge is a well-known landmark. And when it was opened back in the 1800s, a lot of folks didn't trust it. Some folks have an issue with bridges. I don't know if some, some of y'all might have, you get, you get started going across a bridge and you start thinking of all the things that could happen recently. Lynn and Dylan and I drove across the, the Chesapeake Bay Tunnel Bridge. Any of y'all been across that? You start thinking about things. You know, you go across, it's 24 miles long, and you go across a big stretch of water, and then it says, tunnel ahead. That's what I want to do. I want to drive down under the, the Chesapeake Bay. And you're driving down through that tunnel, and you start thinking about what would happen if it sprung a leak. I, su- I suppose what I saw was probably condensation or something, but I started seeing moisture on the walls, had a strange compulsion to push my pedal to the floor. And the sign says, maintain your speed. I'm like, maintain it, buddy. It's getting ready to go up. And you go over another part, and then you go down below. But when this bridge in, in Brooklyn Bridge was built, there was a lot of concern about it. People didn't trust it. They were afraid to go on it. And so they didn't know quite what to do. And so they found a man in town that was known as a showman and known to market and known to promote. His name was P.T. Barnum. Some of y'all remember as kids, we went to the Barnum and Bailey Circus, and, and P.T. Barnum was quite the showman, and he said, I, I can fix that for you, and so he got a number of elephants from his, from his circus. He took about 20 elephants and some camels and a few other animals, and he marched them across that bridge, and they put it in the papers, and they talked about it, and when everybody saw that the bridge was trustworthy, they knew they could trust that bridge. The point of putting the elephants on the bridge was not to try to cause the bridge to fall. It was to demonstrate that it would not fall. And Christ's temptation was not to try to see if he would sin. It was not with the idea that he might sin. It was to show that even under the most intense temptation that any person could experience, under the full range of temptations that anyone could experience, Christ would not sin thankful for the sinlessness of Christ. When we look at this account, we see several things about Christ. I want to just give you these quickly this morning, and then I want to get into what this, what this means for us. The first thing is that it reminds us that Christ was qualified as our sacrifice. There, the sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be without spot and without blemish. For Christ to be the sacrifice for our sins, Christ had to be spotless. He had to be perfect. There has never been a person on this planet who has been sinless. And for our atonement, there had to be a sacrifice that was outside of creation. All of creation lives under the curse of sin. But there is only one being that is outside of creation, and that is God himself. And so God himself had to be our sacrifice. And Jesus, as the sinless, perfect, holy one, Son of God, was qualified to be our sacrifice. 
There would be no power in the gospel if it were not for the complete, perfect innocence and sinlessness of Jesus Christ. But because of His sinlessness, every sin that I have ever committed can be forgiven because He did not commit any. The forgiveness of sins is resting. Jesus Christ is qualified as our sacrifice. But this passage, this account, this truth of the sinlessness of Christ also reminds us that Christ is personified as the second Adam. In Romans chapter 5, there's a comparison between Adam and Christ, and Christ as the second Adam. And when we think about that, we know that, Christ, that Adam failed, but Christ succeeded. And when we compare, there's a lot of things we can note between these, these temptations. Adam, of course, was tempted And in his temptation, he was tempted in a perfect environment. He's in a garden. He's surrounded by beauty. He's surrounded by life. Jesus is tempted in a wilderness. There's no life there. It's dry and it's barren. What a wonderful image to convey the world that Christ came to that was cursed by sin. Adam was tempted in abundance. Adam was tempted, think about this, Adam was tempted to eat something with a full stomach. He lived in a garden filled with plenty of fruit that he could eat. He could eat anything he wanted that was nothing withheld except for that one fruit, and he was tempted with that. Jesus was tempted after 40 days of fasting. Can you imagine where Jesus was? His physical being was after 40 days of fasting. The weakness of his body, the weakness of his mind, the weakness of his emotions. We're, we are our, at our most susceptible to temptation when we are at our physical weakest. And that's where Jesus is. Jesus has spent 40 days in the wilderness with nothing. Adam had abundance. Christ was fasting. Adam was tempted with living fruit. Adam was tempted with a piece of fruit that was fresh off, what, off the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus was tempted with the crushed, dead grain of the ground. This is the temptation that Jesus faced. But as the second Adam, he did what the first Adam did not do. The first Adam fell into sin and cursed and brought sin into the rest of the world. Christ brought righteousness. In fact, that's what Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 says. It says that as by one man's disobedience, sin was brought upon all, many were made sinners, so by the righteousness, the perfect sinlessness of one, will many be made righteous. That's the truth of the the temptation, that Christ was the one who could overcome. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. So he is the second Adam, but then it also tells us that Christ is magnified as our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet, you know the next two words, without sin. And because of that, he is our great high priest. Hebrews says that in the Old Testament, priests were chosen from among humans, among men. They were chosen from the people that they represented so that they wouldn't understand what they had been through. But Christ came, and Christ has never experienced sin. 
God doesn't know what sin feels like. And when he came, he doesn't understand. He's never committed sin, but he has experienced the temptation. And so he stands as our high priest, as one who has felt what we have felt. Let me pause just a minute and say, I've heard people make this statement trying to say a good thing. They'll say that Jesus came so that he could understand how we felt. Jesus came because he wanted to know what that felt like so he could better care for us. Let me just say there's a clear biblical truth that we need to go back to. God does not lack any knowledge. There is nothing that God does not know. There's no knowledge that he does not have. So the idea that Jesus somehow was inefficient or insufficient in his knowledge and he came to this earth so that he could know, so that he could better serve us, is not, doesn't line up with that truth. So why did Jesus do that? He came because of our frailty. He came because of our weakness. What is our frailty? What is our weakness? It is a frailty of our flesh. We accept help best from those who have been through what we've been through. Someone could speak truth to you in a moment when you need encouragement. And you would hear it, and it could be true, but you may not receive it because you think in your mind, they've never been, what through, they've never been through what I've been through, so I'm not going to listen. But if we hear it from someone who has gone through what we have been through, in the weakness of our flesh, we say, I'll listen to that. Jesus did not gain this knowledge. Jesus did not come and have this physical experience so he could gain something he did not have. He came so that we would be more receptive and more ready to receive the aid, the succor that Hebrews talks about. Because we have a high priest that knows what we have felt. He did it for us. He did it because of our weakness, not any weakness in himself. And he is our great high priest. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, it means because I have a sinless Savior, I can be forgiven of my sins. Aren't you glad that your sins are washed away? I am glad for the perfection. I am glad that Luke accounts all the testimonies of the, the supernatural testimonies and the physical testimonies from human beings and the divine testimony from his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one who could face the, gr the greatest temptation of sin and yet walk away perfect. And because of that, my sins can be forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the judge is satisfied to look on him, but pardon me. That's the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. doesn't matter what sin you have committed. doesn't matter where you are. There is no one that is too far gone for the grace of God. We have forgiveness of sins because Jesus is sinless. Does it matter? Does it matter that Jesus is sinless? It matters a great deal. Think about the sins of your life. Think about the sins just that you have confessed and God has forgiven. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But where does that cleansing come from? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the shedding of blood had to be from a perfect sacrifice. 
And so we have forgiveness of sins. And every time I bow my head and I say, God, forgive me for whatever that sin is, I can count on forgiveness because of the sinless Son of God. I can count on having righteousness. I have been made righteousness. Now, there's two kinds of righteousness, and both of these come because of the sinlessness of Christ. When you and I trust Christ as our Savior, there is what is called imputed righteousness. That is righteousness of Christ that is attributed to my account. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 says that because of the obedience of one, many are made righteous. I stand before God righteous, not because of anything that I have done, not because of my goodness, but because of the goodness and the perfectness of, right, of Jesus Christ. I am glad that my standing before God is not based on my performance. I'm glad that it's not based on how good I am. I'm glad that it's not based on me measuring up, because I will never measure up. Our, personal, our interpersonal human relations are generally based on, what, do we measure up? Are we satisfying? Are we meeting the needs of this person? Do they approve? Do, they, do we measure up? But my standing before God is not based on myself. It is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because of His obedience, I have been made righteous. There's also imparted righteousness. He talks about this in Romans chapter 8. <coughs> he says that what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. What did Jesus do coming in righteousness and in perfection? He condemned sin in the flesh. He demonstrated that under the perfect control of the Holy Spirit, this imparted righteousness could be imparted to us. What is this imparted righteousness? It is not the righteousness I receive that I stand in, in Christ before God. It is the righteousness that God works in me through my sanctification and through the work of the Spirit. And how does that happen? Because the same Holy Spirit that was perfectly filling Jesus Christ and controlling everything that He said, all that the Father says to me, I do, He said. That perfection came by the work of the Holy Spirit that descended like, on Him like a dove. And the same Spirit of life, Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of life in Christ is the one that has done this. It's that same Spirit that dwells in us. And you and I have the opportunity to not only stand in righteousness before God, but to walk in righteousness before God. And it's all because of a sinless Savior. Because of this, there's a third thing that is true for us. And that is because He is sinless, I can draw near to God. I can come into His presence. The verses that I read just a moment ago quoted Hebrews chapter 4. Powerful, wonderful verses. Hebrews, the message, of course, being that Christ is greater. Listen to this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. What is it that makes him a great high priest? He's a great high priest because he's a sinless high priest. That is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. What do we do? We have a great high priest. He is a sinless high priest. 
What, what does that mean? Well, how do I live in light of that? This is eminently practical. This is important because there is a command for us to obey. There is a call for us to answer. And what is that? Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. We draw near to God because we have a perfect high priest. And when I come before God, I don't stand in my righteousness. I don't stand in my goodness. I come and when I bow my head in prayer, when I come to an altar of prayer, when I kneel beside a chair, when I kneel beside my bed, when I pray going down the road with my eyes open, of course, or when I pray at a moment of need, I may physically be right where I am. But spiritually, I am drawing near to the throne of grace. And I am entering into the presence of God. And I come in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because He has made me righteous through His obedience, there is never any question of whether I can come or not. I can come boldly to the throne of grace. And when do I come? I come in my time of need to find mercy and help. You ever have a time of need? Ever have a time when you need God's mercy, when you need God's grace, when you need God's strength? In that time of need, we can draw near. I can come into the presence of God at any moment, at any time, at any place, not because I'm good, but because He is perfect. That's the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. You and I can draw near at any time into His presence. And when we do... We have a high priest that knows. There may be people that you go to for encouragement and help, and they don't know. They care, but they don't know. We have a high priest who knows because he is sinless, because he is perfect, we can enter into his presence. We have a sympathetic Savior, come to Him. Need forgiveness? Come to Him. Need salvation? Come to Him. Need mercy? Need grace? Need strength? Need peace? Need power? Come to the sinless high priest. It is in Him that we find all that we need. I don't know this morning what you need. I don't know what you're going through. I know some, but not all. But I'll tell you one that knows all, and that is our high priest. And there is a sinless high priest that is at the throne of God. And when I come into his presence, he is there to say, Father, that one's mine. I know what he needs. And he gives me the grace that is specifically suited exactly for what I need. And just like when you go to a, a tailor and the tailor cuts the suit or cuts the dress to exactly fit what you need. When we come to the throne of grace, God has grace and mercy and strength that is exactly tailored for what I need. What I need today 
is not going to be what I need tomorrow. What I need tomorrow is not going to be what you need tomorrow. What we need tomorrow is not going to be what we need the next day or the next. But in every moment of need, I come into the presence of God. I come to the throne of grace. And there is a sinless Savior who is there to intercede on my behalf. What do you need? Come to Jesus. Come to the sinless Savior. Will you bow with me for prayer this morning? This morning, maybe you need salvation. I want you to know your sins can be forgiven because of a perfect Savior, a sinless Savior. And I invite you to come this morning and trust Christ as your Savior. Pastor, what does that mean? It simply means acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and confessing Him as your Lord and Savior. If you'd like to come and talk to someone to know more about that, we'd love to talk with you, or you can pray right where you are. But if you need salvation from your sin, come to the sinless Savior. Maybe this morning you need grace or mercy or strength. You say, Pastor, you just don't know what I'm going through, and I would probably truthfully have to say, no, I don't. But you have a Savior that does. What is it that you need? Come into His presence. Come to the Savior. Come to the sinless high priest. Father, speak to our hearts in this.